Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. You guys would just bow your heads with me once more. Lord Jesus, we are an eager people. We're eager in so many things in life. Many of us are eager to go home and watch the first weekend of football. We are eager for hunting season. We are eager um, for fall, eager for things to go back to normal. Um, And Lord, make us a people, most of all, eager for your word. I'm eager to hear from you so that we might have wisdom for all of life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, wisdom for you is not a principle, but it's a person. It's in seeing how Christ restores our humanity through his redemption that we are able to live as people with clarity in life, even when we don't quite know what to do. So we ask that that is uh, accomplished in our midst today by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you've been with us online, been here, if you're a college student who's maybe with us for the last couple weeks, we've just finished a season working through uh, the books of First and Second Peter, and today we start a new book, which is an excellent follow-up to all of the themes that Peter was telling his church. And the book is the book of Proverbs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs is a segment of literature in scripture that's often referred to as wisdom literature. It exists to make one wise. What does that mean? It's important we understand what we mean. We say it it makes us wise, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But before we get going, I want to give us two reasons why I think uh, this is a perfect time for us as a church in this period to be in the book of Proverbs. First, the book of Proverbs was written for the 21st century eye, but the eternal heart. Researchers are beginning to realize that our reading patterns are being changed because of the medium of social media and internet blogging. Our eyes are no longer trained to read in depth. We're reading in a specific pattern that skims and learns to glean structure and brevity over the actual content of the message. And if there's any biblical style that is perfect for today's eye, it's that of the Proverbs and their brief, punchy lines. Perhaps you've heard of there uh, some of the, the top-notch Proverbs, things that are easily under the now 240-character Twitter limit, right? Is it 240, 260? used to be 140. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but those who do, let the reader understand. But such lines as this, a cheerful heart is good medicine, Proverbs 17, 22. Pride comes before the fall, Proverbs 16, 18. Spare the rod, spoil the child, Proverbs 13, 24. A friend loves at all times. Proverbs 17, 17. These are truths that our minds and our eyes are hardwired to find. Even in our political discourse, we want this to be this condensed packet of information. And yet, unlike what we encounter in today's media, these aren't meant to be thrown away. They're meant to be dwelt upon. Kind of like grandma's hard candy. You put it in your mouth, you roll it around on your tongue, you savor it, you taste it, so you might know it. And so they're very similar to what our world is longing for, and yet they're distinct, and they cause us to really think, to consider, and to wrestle them. 
wrestle with them. And this leads to the second reason I'm excited for this book, is it helps us live in a world of constant voices. It's interesting, I'm reading a book right now talking about the politics in World War II and how politics was changing then because of the invention of uh, the telegraph and transcontinental communications. And we are in a world that has seen that develop into light years where it's in our pocket. It's perhaps buzzing at this moment. We are connected to voices and opinions and product 24-7 where it's on social media or it's our news cycles, it's our friends, it's our own voices. We live in a a community of conversation. And it often seems that whoever's voice is loudest is the voice that wins. So what do we do? Well, look at what Proverbs 1, 20 through 21 says, this hope we have today. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice At the head of noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So here in a culture of sound is wisdom crying out to us, crying out to be heard. If you've ever felt yourself pulled in a million directions, then hear the words of Proverbs. If you've ever felt the pace of life to be crushing or the burdens of the world to be never-ending, Hear the wisdom of God. If you've ever felt like a complete and abject fool and you wonder if there's hope for you, hear God's grace in the book of Proverbs. That's because this book, contrary to how we're prone to approach it, even as Christians, is not a self-help book. It's a God's help book. This book depends upon the grace of the God who gives it, not the intelligence of the one who receives it. This book is not about you. This book is about God and his mercy towards you. And this is a large part, the main point of our first sermon in this book. You see, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are the prologue to the book. It's a long prologue. It's like Tolkien-esque in its length. And today is the prologue to the prologue. It's the teaser trailer to the feature film. As we're going to be looking, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the first seven verses, which KJ just read for us. And the big picture we're going to see today is this, is that the wisdom of God is eternal grace applied daily. The wisdom of God is eternal grace applied daily. And we're going to unpack this. If you have your Bible in front of you, uh, I'm looking at the ESV. You can kind of see the three divisions that are already in there that the editors put in. And first, we're going to see in verses 1 through 2 an introduction to Proverbs. In verses 3 to 6, we're going to see the effect of Proverbs. And then in verse 7, we're going to see the beginning of wisdom, which is going to be the main point of the entire book of Proverbs. So we're going to start by looking at the first section, which is the introduction to Proverbs. So read with me again verses 1 and 2. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Now, technically, verse 1 is the introduction, but I'm lumping verse 1 and verse 2 together because in unison, they give you kind of a complete picture of what's going on in this book in that verse 1 tells you what it is you're reading and verse 2 tells you the purpose of what it is you're reading. And so in looking at this, verse 1, what are we reading? We're reading the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. 
I don't know how familiar you are with biblical literature, but Proverbs, like the book of Psalms, is not written by one single author. There are multiple authors that um, people gathered together their works and put them together as a unit of literature. And so we are going to encounter, as we move through this series, some Proverbs written by other men. But the book of Proverbs is primarily consisted of, consisting of and begins with the Proverbs of this man named Solomon, King Solomon. And why is this important? Because when you look back at literature during this time, there are all sorts of ancient Near East religions that have kind of wisdom literature. In fact, there's a bunch of Egyptian literature that kind of mimics what the Proverbs are doing, and they're written at a similar time. So why is it we should listen to this? Why is this important? Because these are Proverbs written by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. This is not a generic self-help book you could find at Barnes & Noble. This is God's disclosure to his kings at a specific time. And this is where it's really important because as we read 1 Peter, we read kind of this letter that's written. We read the Gospel of Matthew, or as we read Exodus, which was read earlier today, we read this narrative. There's no story in the book of Proverbs, no historical events that are being called upon and drawn back to us in great clarity. But what we see here is this inscription actually places the book of Proverbs in the entire story of Scripture. We are reading what life is like at the peak of God's kingdom. When God has fulfilled his promise to establish his king in its place and his people. And to know kind of the origin story, right? Every story has an origin story. The origin story for Proverbs starts in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. It says this. In the night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be fulfilled now, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will give you riches and possession and honor such as none of the kings who are before you and none after you shall have the like. So you've often heard us say the line that God's not a genie, but here he kind of breaks the mold a little bit. <laughs> he goes to Solomon, he says, you get one thing. What's it going to be? And Solomon sees that God has fulfilled all of his promises to establish a people. And he now stands as the head of this people to lead this kingdom into the flourishing God created humanity to do. And he says, how am I going to do this? He says, who can govern a people as great as this? Who's wise enough for this task? And he asks God for wisdom. And God is so amazed, he gives him not only wisdom, but everything else that he could have possibly wanted. And what's the point here? Is not even King Solomon. Solomon, son of David, was wise enough or bright enough to rule God's people how they ought to be ruled. But God was merciful 
even in Solomon's weaknesses, to give him the wisdom he needed to do what God called him to do. And here's the wonder of this. Solomon had it written down, so the same wisdom he had, we now have. You see, God's kingdom makes not only a wonderful kingdom and smart kings, it makes wise citizens. God wants you to know this wisdom. He wants you to know the wonderful things that God gave to Solomon. And he teaches us these in this book. This king who saw God's covenant promise and received teaching by God's mercy in a proverb. So what's a proverb? Well, it's a book in the Bible. and We get stuck in a circular loop. But what is a proverb? It's a Hebrew word that on one hand just communicates a style of poetry, a style of writing. But it means, the word simply means a saying Specifically, a saying by similarity. Now, as we read this, you'll notice that the poetic mechanism we get into Proverbs, it's not like Dr. Seuss, it's not going to have this great stunning rhyme, but how it builds the effect is actually by using similarities and contrasts. Consider this famous proverb. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't steal the mask off the old Lone Ranger. And you don't mess around with Jim. You see, how are we supposed to understand this song? Well, the author builds on similarity, doesn't he? You know you don't do that to Superman. You know you shouldn't spit into the wind. You know you shouldn't take the mask off the old Lone Ranger. So don't mess around with Jim. Now, here's the beauty of Proverbs. Do any of us have to have met Jim? No, but we know we ain't going to mess around with him. Proverbs gives us wisdom beforehand by comparing and contrasting so that we can see, I understand that, I understand that, I understand that, that's something I'm not going to do. Or in the inverse, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is better. You see, wisdom gives us uh, knowledge beforehand so that we might avoid foolish decisions. I heard one pastor brilliantly summarize the tone of Proverbs when he says this, the world says live and learn, Proverbs says learn and live. The grace of Proverbs is that it lets us know things beyond our experience so that we don't have to experience it ourselves. I was hiking once with some friends in the trail split, and I just happened to be the first person at this trail split. And so I went first, and I chose the path. And long story short, a few steps in, I almost fell off of a cliff. You know what my wise friends did afterwards? They went a different way. (laughs) They took the other trail. And that's what Proverbs is affording for us to do is to see there's a better way to live. There's a better joy to have. There is pain to be avoided, and there's a joy that comes in obeying God's gracious wisdom for all of life. So what are we reading when we read the Proverbs? We're reading God's gracious revelation to his kings, which rule his people towards flourishing. But what is the purpose of these sayings? Well, look at verse 2. Why is Solomon recording these things? to know wisdom and instruction, and to understand words of insight. Why does God want you to know this? So you might be wise and understand sound insight. If you really want to understand what God is doing here, you're going to actually stumble into something pretty astounding because God is after, and this is so, if you've been raised in the church, this is a paradigm that needs to be crushed, and Solomon does it in the book of Proverbs. God is after far more than obedience. He's after wisdom in life. You see, if obedience is just knowing how to play by the rules, wisdom is being good at the game. 
Wisdom is the end to which obedience exists. It's not just that we would stay on the sideline and know what not to do. It is to have fun doing what God has called us to do so that we might do well, that it might be satisfying to us. If the only metric you use in your walk with God on a day-to-day basis is, am I being disobedient? That is a good metric, but it's not the only metric God gives. He's actually after you to be wise. And you need to think, am I thinking rightly on this thing so that I might live rightly and enjoy the beauty of God? You see, the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah. And the word chokmah expresses far more than smarts or common sense. It actually communicates this idea of skill or of excellence. Look at how Moses uses the word chokmah in Exodus 28. And if, if you can see on the screen... Um, I've bolded the word that shares the same root as hokmah. This is in Exodus 28, verse 3. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And so as Moses is looking for these craftsmen in the city, God calls him to go to those who are skillful, those who have hokmah, those who have a wise understanding that manifests itself in excellence. In other words, why should you care about what Proverbs is saying? Because wisdom is not arbitrary riddles and Yoda speak. Wisdom is not something simply for the old and contemplative. Wisdom is not good observational skills. Wisdom is God's grace to have the skill to live as his covenant people. Wisdom is God's kind gift that you might be skilled at life, but life in his way of living. Don't you want to thrive like that? We want to thrive, and God is here offering you that thriving life in the form of wisdom. And now when we talk about that, we need to be careful. We want to thrive how God calls us to thrive, not how the Hollywood tells us to thrive. And so we want to make that distinction here and now. But God is offering you the ability to have skill for life here in this book. And wisdom, we see already, comes from God. You see the verb there in verse 3. We receive wisdom. To receive instruction. God is offering you one of the most precious gifts in the whole world. And he is offering it to you to simply receive and to live. So what does it look like? Why should we want to receive this? Why is this a good gift to have? Solomon continues to sell us on wisdom in verses 3 through 6, where we see the effect of the Proverbs. Look here, see if anything that follows is attractive to you or meets a need you might have in your own life. Verses 3 through 6. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, if you're listening really carefully here, you may have heard three distinct spaces where Solomon is saying, Here is where wisdom bears a benefit. We actually see in these texts three things, that wisdom influences society, wisdom supplements the simple and the young, and wisdom enlivens the wise and the old. 
We see the benefit of, of wisdom in society in verse 1, verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Those are all cultural and societal words that is being used here. He's saying if you receive this instruction, it could also be translated discipline. In other words, it's not going to come easy. Like a good coach disciplining you in your mechanics of throwing a football or of swinging a golf club, God is going to discipline you to the end that righteousness, wise dealings, equity, and justice show up in your life. If you want to see a flourishing society, you don't look in history. You look towards the society that God is building through redemption in the gospel. This is what it looks like to flourish. God's wisdom makes us wise in our dealings with others. We are not predatorial, nor are we foolish. We make wise dealings because God has given us wisdom. God's wisdom gives us instruction on what is righteous, what is good, what is beneficial to others. God's wisdom helps us to know true justice and to pursue it. And God's wisdom helps us in a society where calls for justice seem to be competing on every corner to exercise justice with complete equality and fairness. God's world has everything our world wants because God created that want in the world. God wants us to be satisfied in him. Doesn't this sound like something we desire? In fact, look at how uh, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 4 where God gives the law and talks about its wisdom. Look at the social effect it should have on those around Israel. Verse 5, see I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. So this is Moses talking. That you should do them in the land you're entering and take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Do you hear verse 2 there? Verse 2 of Proverbs. It'll be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God's wisdom applied in the lives of God's people is attractive to outsiders. Wisdom is winsome. People should want it. But in a broken world, it doesn't always end up that way. Because it's true that this world is not God's kingdom. And our coworkers and our neighbors and our family might not be able to see the kingdom of God, but they can see God's kingdom people, can't they? Here today, we see God's kingdom people. We see the church. We see people who are called to live under God's kingdom ideals, even if we fully admit that this is not God's kingdom. Good news for us. It gets better than this. And it's guaranteed to. So a good point of application right now is for you to pause and to consider the communities you have in your life, your community groups, your jobs, your classrooms, your social social circles, and to consider where do those qualities in verse 2 show up? And if they don't, here's good news for you. God's wisdom helps us. You see, we'll see as Proverbs develop the comparison that here we see the benefit of wisdom. It blesses those. But as it goes on, we see the foolishness of of those who are fools and it hurts people. Godly wisdom bears benefits in community. And our church should be an example of that. 
But secondly, not only does this uh, benefit society, it actually supplements the simple and the young. Wisdom supplements the simple and the young. Look at verse 4. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So again, we have to sit here. That's quick. We could easily read it and think we understand everything, but it wants us to sit and to think on this. You see, Proverbs often talks about the simple man, and while this isn't at face value a derogatory term, it does communicate the sense of an ordinary life. A simple man is a man who is not afforded a college education, one who realizes he's not super keen on thinking through the metaphysical problems in life, one who doesn't claim to have the solutions to our political quagmire. As we'll see next week um, in chapter 1, God desires the simple man to grow. Here we see how they grow. Though they be simple, to receive God's wisdom gives them prudence. Another way you could translate it is gives them shrewdness. In other words, though you might be simple, you will not be a sucker. God will give you what you need to know what to resist and to know what to do. Many of us might think us ourselves to be the simple one. And here's the joy of God's wisdom. To follow Jesus well, you don't need to have a PhD in systematic theology. Though theology is helpful and good. To be a wise follower of Jesus means that you get to do the simple but hard work of going to God for his wisdom, which makes you shrewd and wise for the world, even if on some level of assessment you might be more simple than those who are around you. There is wonderful good news of the equalizing grace of God and his wisdom, that you and me can all pursue God with wisdom, even if we're gifted in different ways. Similarly, the young by nature, where the simple man might lack wisdom, God provides it, where the young might lack two things, experience and discretion, God adds to that through wisdom. If you're young, you often realize that what you lack in wisdom and, or in experience and discretion, they often show up at the same time, don't they? Because what's really important to understand about wisdom is wisdom is different than just being right. We can strive to be right and still be a fool. But wisdom gives us discretion and experience, which changes what, how we respond. I remember as a young pastor, as a young married man, I got called on what was generally uh, my day off to come and open up the church building because there was a family that needed to look at it for a funeral. So I got off the call. I was at home. It was around dinner time. I told Sarah. I was like, Sarah, I need to go um, and do this right now. And it was... Very inconvenient time. And so Sarah, innocently and wisely, pressed, she's watching at home, and I love you, and you were right, and I was wrong. Um, uh, she said, is there another time that you could do this? And the truth was, there wasn't. And oftentimes there is, if you would just ask. Not everything is 911. And so she was graciously letting me in to know that this is going to be difficult, and she's willing to do it, but is there a better time? And I, again, knew that there wasn't. And I know that verses like Proverbs 15, 1 exists. A harsh word turns away wrath, but a strong word stirs up anger. And I knew that what I should say was, you know what, sweetheart? There's not. This is unfortunately the only time. Is there anything I could do when I get back to help you with this? Or can I just, can we press pause for a second? That's not what I did. <laughs> what I did say was, yeah, this death is really inconvenient, isn't it? 
yeah, that was bad, if you missed that. <laughs> that, was, that was right, and then it corresponded to reality. There was no other time, but I was wrong because I was a fool in how I said it. And here's the wonderful thing about wisdom, is I knew that verse existed. I knew that says, don't say the thing you're going to say. But what did I want? I wanted to experience it for myself in hopes that maybe every other person experienced that turning to anger, but I was smart enough with my satire to turn it into joy and vindication. (laughs) It didn't work that way. You see, those who are young, we sometimes think in order for something to be true, we need to first experience it. The world calls that adventurous. The Bible calls that a fool. So we need to listen to what the Proverbs are saying that we might be spared. If you're new to following Jesus, even if you're older in age, you are young in many ways. And here's the wonderful truth. You might not, you might say, will I ever look like so-and-so in following Jesus? And here's what the Bible says. Yes, you can. Because I can give you knowledge beyond your experience because we have God's gracious word which speaks into our lives and helps us to learn and to grow. And so here we see it's helpful for the young. It supplements what is lacking. But we also see for you gray hairs in here that wisdom enlivens the old and the wise. Look at verses 5 and 6. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So it's not always that those who are older are what's wise or who is wise and those who are younger are who is simple, but generally in what Proverbs is speaking is in generalizations, that is true. And generally when one is older in age and they consider themselves to be wise in many areas, you can be prone to believe two lies. The first lie is that you've learned enough of God's wisdom. You've assembled enough in that savings account that you no longer need to earn. Effort, the, the error number two is that you've run your course in life. You've done all the things that an able-bodied youth should do, and now you just get to coast through retirement and be catered to the rest of your life. And wisdom actually corrects both of these things, and this is a wonderful thing to be corrected. Because in correcting the, thing that you, the, the error that you just coast through life, we see that wisdom brings great purpose into your life even when you are aged in wisdom and in years. Look at the first two words in verses 3 and verses 4, the first two verbs in Hebrews that are are synonyms, antonyms, antonyms, right? They contrast each other. I think that's right. Is that right? I need wisdom, okay? Um, I I have no chokmah in my grammar skills. But but verse 3, to receive. What's the first verb in verse 4? To give. To receive and to give. Why does Solomon give these proverbs? So that those who receive it might then turn and give it. The person, wise person takes wisdom and the wise person gives wisdom. If you consider yourself to be wise in the area of following Jesus, wisdom reminds you of your purpose. God is not done with you. He is calling you to turn and to help 
those who are simple and to help those who are young. To take those godly skills that you have developed by God's grace and to turn and to give them to somebody else. You see, wisdom, this wisdom right here is the promise on which all of discipleship rests. How can we help each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel? Because we have received wisdom in the gospel. You have everything God's demanding you to give. Isn't that good news? That you will never outgrow God's purpose to contribute in the task of disciple-making because wisdom is not something you manufacture. Wisdom is something that God gives you. And when you have it, you get to give it. And then Solomon expresses the joy of this. Not only do you give it, but you're never done learning. To the wise, increase To the one who understands, obtain guidance. Because God is the source of wisdom, you will never exhaust it. Solomon says, hey, Mr. Wise, it gets better. Keep learning. Keep wrestling with God. The wise never think they understand God's word well enough. Instead, they realize that God is constantly and always giving them more goodness and more grace through his word as they understand more and more the implications of God's covenant reality in their life. Wise return to God for guidance regardless of their age. Ray Ortland is a pastor who said this to those who are wise and aged. He said, don't die before you die. God has much to teach you And you have much to teach the church. And this is how God has desired his kingdom to exist. In knowing and in giving. So what do we see here? We see this book is for the simple. This book is for the young. This book is for the wise. This book is for the old. Do you get the point that this book is for you? But there's a slight problem that we run into in verse 6, isn't there? In verse 6, he begins to understand the task that is set at hand. And that task is given in four ways, Solomon says, each of which imply a sort of problem. Look at verse uh, 6. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Why is he saying what he's saying here in four different ways? Because he's saying it's not going to be easy. You need to understand a word that you don't have. Sayings of men wiser than yourself. Proverbs you need to interpret, riddles, enigmas, and mysteries that you must understand. So how do we do this? If the wise need help with this, what hope do the rest of us have? Well, here in verse 7, Solomon gives us the catchphrase to the whole book. And you know how powerful a catchphrase is for top-of-mind awareness or for framing how you think about things. Whether it's just do it when you think of Nike, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. There's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. Thank you. My wife appreciates that. They get emboldened in our mind, embedded in our minds, so that when we think of it, we know what to think. And what does Solomon want you to think about when you think about wisdom? Does that make sense? Are you wise enough to follow? (laughs) Well, he gives us this slogan, this summarizing passage of the whole book in verse 7 when he says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here we have our final point this morning. The beginning of wisdom. Where does wisdom start? Wisdom starts. Knowledge starts. Societal change starts. Prudence for the simple. Experience for the youth. Hope and purpose for the wise starts with the fear of the Lord. 
Now, even for a believer, someone who's followed Jesus for a number of years, this is still a phrase we wrestle with. There's a bunch of mystery in this phrase, and there always will be. Even when we're in heaven, I imagine this will still be a mystery for us. But because we want whatever it is that Solomon's selling at this point, we should stop and try to understand this a little more. What does he mean when he says the fear of the Lord? Well, in one sense, we need to understand this is unlike any fear we have in this world. Why? Because it's the fear of the Lord. And he's using here the word Yahweh, the personal name God gives himself in Scripture, the covenant God of his people, Yahweh. Knowing lots of things doesn't make you wise. Vague spirituality doesn't make you wise. It's your relationship to this covenant-keeping king of Scripture that makes you wise. If you miss this God who sets forth to rule his people in covenant, then you miss all of it. You miss everything. Wisdom doesn't start with you. Wisdom starts with, doesn't even start with Solomon. Wisdom starts with God who graciously gives out of his own identity. The God who created the cosmos and set this world in motion, who is still actively involved. This God gives wisdom. This God desired us to live in such a relationship with him that we have all this wisdom at our fingertips forever so we might honor him, love others, and flourish in life. The problem is that that relationship was not only frustrated but destroyed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve proved themselves to be fools. And then confusion came. Wisdom existed. We see that in the book of Proverbs. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. It was here. And yet Solomon himself ends his reign by disobeying the same wisdom he writes. And it leads the nation of Israel into a total train wreck. Solomon wasn't good enough to keep his wisdom. It maintained level of confusion. But God wasn't done acting. In Luke 11 verse 31, a man who is considered by his people in his own hometown to be a simple carpenter's son named Jesus said this, said something greater than Solomon is here. And that was Jesus Christ. You see, we can look at every talking head, we can look at every book, we can look at every assessment test, we can look at every politician to find wisdom, but where has the God of the universe placed wisdom in a way where we can truly understand it? Look at 1 Corinthians 1. I'll read a longer text, but this is so important here, verses 20 through 31. Paul says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, I told you my laws, I gave you my proverbs, and you still didn't do it. You still lived as fools. There was no flourishing. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Consider your salvation, brothers and sisters, in here. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Do you hear the paradox of wisdom? Do you hear its riddle? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, do you hear Proverbs 1 verse 2, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where do we know God? Where do we find the wisdom that brings us into a fear that gives us skill for life in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, Jesus is the paradox of wisdom. Sin promises joy but leads to death. Salvation promises death in Jesus Christ and leads to joy. And that is what only the wise can see through eyes of faith. That is what the cross shows in all of its brutality where Christ took the wages of your sin. But that is what life stands in the promise of an empty tomb. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that you do not need wisdom. You need Jesus. And Jesus restores us to the one who is all wise. You see, your greatest problem is not that you're a fool. That's the symptom of your problem. The greatest problem, the root of our foolishness, is that we relationally rebel against a God and we constantly choose to say, you're the dummy and I am the God. You don't know, but I am. So what does this mean when it calls us to fear God? The truth of the matter is there's all sorts of implications to the fear of God. We're going to unpack some of those as we progress through this book. But here, uh, we begin to see the beauty of wisdom literature because we see how Solomon wants us to understand the fear of God here in this text. And I believe how Solomon's using this, he wants us to understand that the fear of God is a sincere reliance upon God as a source for all of your life. He's implying the fear of God as a desperate reliance and obedience to this God. And how do we know this is what he's emphasizing? Because remember what I said, the, the mechanism of pro Proverbs is not rhymes, it's comparison and it's contrast. And here we begin to see, by contrast, what he wants us to see. Verse 7 shows us this contrast. It shows what the fear of the Lord is by showing us what the fear of the Lord is not. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What is it not? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. To not fear the Lord is to be a fool. How do the fool respond? They despise wisdom and the instruction of God. They say, I don't need you. Remember when we look at the false teachers in 2 Peter 2 verse 10 where Peter says their problem is that they despise authority. What does it look like for you to be a fool? It's to look at the things of God 
and to say, no thanks. That's not for me. I can invent a better God than you. That's to be a fool. It's to refuse to see your need for Jesus and to submit your whole life to him and instead to think that you know what's best and you could save yourself from the pains of this world by knowing the wisdom of it. But even the wisdom of the world cannot save, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. J.I. Packer points out the paradox of biblical wisdom in contrast to worldly wisdom. He says that worldly wisdom assumes, maybe like you might today if you're not a Christian, you might look at this and assume that if I look here in Christianity, if I look there at Buddhism or here at secularism or here at humanism, I might be able to piece together what it is we're looking for and by that knowledge I can actually be ahead of the problems of this world and live a life full of flourishing. Worldly wisdom assumes that you can know it and do it. But look at what Packer says about biblical wisdom. So far from the gift of wisdom consisting in the power to know everything, the gift actually supposes our conscious inability to know everything. Wisdom boasts in its weakness, or as Paul says, wisdom boasts in its Christ. Wisdom knows that we are incomplete and we cannot look inward and nor can we look outward. We can only look upward to see the thing that the world needs and be reliant upon that God for all of life. My wife and I have started watching a uh, reality show that sees how long people can survive in the wilderness. And there's one common thing. Those survival experts all live with a reverent fear of the river. They know that the river is what provides them with fresh water and with food. And their biggest fear are not the bears or the cougars or the badgers or the dark nights. Their biggest fear is that they would wake up one day and the river would stop producing its bounty. They need the river. And they fear its loss. We need God's wisdom for us in Jesus Christ like a starving man needs a fish. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we know that in the world when we feel like we know nothing and we have needs, we can go to the river of God in Jesus and get more than what we need. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 uh, verse 32 says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The river of God's grace and provision is not controlled by a prudish, bemoaning God. But by, as James says, a God who delights to give us wisdom, who always reminds us of his grace, who wants us to think differently, not so that we can suppress joy, but so that we can live in wonderful obedience to him. God's grace is so good that godly wisdom shapes every aspect of our life because there is not one inch of this reality left untouched by the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs says this, We look into this book and as by the aid of a microscope we see the minuteness of our Christian obligations that there is not a temper, a look, a word, a movement, the most important action of the day, the smallest relative duty 
in which we do not either deface or adorn the image of our Lord and the profession of his name. A slogan we often use here at Sovereign Hope is gospel change for all of life. If we want that, we must be a people for biblical wisdom. Wisdom that shows us the reality of sin and the relief from it in Jesus Christ that empowers us by wisdom to disciple, by wisdom to go to the nations, by wisdom to care for those who are hurting, by wisdom to glorify God in all we do. You cannot live life without a constant reflection on the God who saves you when his salvation is so infinite. In closing, I want to speak to those who feel like a fool. There are those in here who despise wisdom and instruction, whether categorically as a non-believer or characteristically as a sinner wrestling with specific sins. And you might feel that you have tasted folly far too many times to ever become wise. There's no way forward for you but look at the wonderful blessing of Proverbs 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of something new for you. That God's wisdom, that that relationship through Jesus Christ is a new beginning. A new beginning for new wisdom, for new life, for new joy, for new mercies. Would you submit to this wisdom? And live. And here's the wonderful news of this. The wise man and the fool both start in verse 7. This is where we go. Whether we realize this aching and eating away raw wound of sin in our life or whether we are just struggling to follow Jesus in the pace of life, verse 7 says that this is sufficient. There is always a way when this God is your God. There is always a way because of Jesus' wonderful gift for us. And it's my prayer that as we work through this book, we see the joyful effect of that eternal grace on a daily level as we realize the weight and wonder of God's wisdom in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want we want to be smart. We want to be well thought of. We want to be successful. We want to be comforted. We want all of these things. And we use the word wisdom, but how many of us really want to be wise as you have given it? How many of us want our wisdom to manifest itself, not in riches of comfort, but in actually scheming and plotting acts of costly discipleship? Wisdom which puts away sin and puts on holiness. Wisdom which grabs life that you have shown in Christ, brings joy and life and flourishing so that our wisdom is not a private benefit of our own convenience, but it is actually given for the glory of your name and the conversion of the lost. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken wisdom in Christ so that you might speak wisdom into our lives. Lord, help us to receive prudence, knowledge, and discretion, never-ending instruction, and wonderful God-exalting guidance. 
For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Amen.